Our study on the authentic Christ takes us to the banks of the Jordan River just before it spills into the Dead Sea for an event in the life of Jesus recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. God's Word does not repeat itself meaninglessly. The baptism of Jesus must have been important, for it is not every day that God speaks in an audible voice from heaven. Please listen as Dave opens to Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. What we want to talk about today is, does Jesus care? Does he identify? In other words, does he know about suffering? Does he know about sin? Does he know about the struggles that we face? Is he like those old rich who just stay detached to live free from cares, although no one can really do that, but he could. Jesus is the one person that could. We want to ask the question, does Jesus really identify with us? Does Jesus really care? Now there's one area that's, that's very, very distant from the Lord Jesus, and that is the problem of sin. Some of the biggest struggles that we have, some of the biggest problems that we have come because we're wrestling with sin. We get up and there's a part of us that says, yes, I need to go and worship God. I need to go and praise Him. I need to go and bring glory to His name. There's another side of us that says, no, I don't want to do that because, boy, I know some of those people there have hurt me. Some of those people have let me down. I don't like some of those people. I've got real personality conflicts. The kids are yelling and screaming. I just stay at home. And that conflict, and then we're slayed by, well, how in the world could I ever say that I'm a believer? How could I ever say I'm a child of God? And one of the most special things I'm supposed to do, which is to praise Him, I'm having a fight over it. One part of me really wants to do it. Another part is repulsed by it. How in the world do I handle this struggle? Jesus must be angry with me. He must be upset with me because I'm even having this struggle. How could you ever love somebody who's debating over whether or not they should praise you. That's the reality of a Sunday morning. It's the reality of our Christian lives. That's what's really happening. We cover it up, but there's intense struggle deep inside. At times in our life, the struggle doesn't go very well. We kind of wander away. We ask some questions we don't get the answer to. We wander away from the Lord. We wander away from His people. We go through severe times of questioning. And the question we ask in the midst of those times is, does Jesus care? Does He know where I'm at? What's His attitude towards me? There's three basic things I want you to think about in light of the text we're going to look at. Number one is I want you to think about why in the world Jesus, who was the spotless Lamb of God, identified with sinful people in today's passage, He's going to be baptized. And I want you to begin to think right now about what it meant in John the Baptist's ministry to be baptized. And we're going to talk about why in the world the spotless Lamb of God had to be baptized. The second thing I want you to think about is how did Jesus have the power? You say, well, He was omnipotent. He was the Son of God. Of course He had the power. Philippians 2 tells us that He chose to empty Himself of that omnipotence. And there's a great mystery in that, but Jesus chose in his earthly life, in his struggle with pain and suffering and sin, not to draw upon his omnipotence. He drew upon his omnipotence just to give his authenticating papers, you might say. 
He gave his credentials by giving you glimpses of his omnipotence. But he never used his omnipotence to struggle with the kind of problems we struggle with. So we want to talk about it. How did he get the power to keep going? How did he have the power to live a lifelong commitment to his father? The final question I want you to be thinking about is this. If you walk out of these doors today, and it's raining out there, but suddenly the clouds broke, a gleam of sunlight broke through those clouds, there was a rumble of thunder, and in that rumble of thunder, you could discern a voice. And it was very clearly the Sinai voice of God. Remember at Mount Sinai when God spoke to the children of Israel in an audible voice? Let's suppose that God spoke to you in an audible voice and the content of what he was going to say is what he thinks about you. What he thinks about you. And I want you to be honest. A voice from heaven, God the Father, breaks the silence and says, this is Dave Wurtzen. What would he say next to characterize? You put your name in there. This is, put your name in there. I want you to stop and ask yourself, what would God the Father say? Because the way you respond to that question gives a lot of insight about your relationship with God, how you feel about that relationship, and what's happening in that relationship. Let's begin, first of all, with a question. Why in the world did the spotless Lamb of God submit to John the Baptist's ministry? Let's turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 3. We were introduced to the prophet like Elijah who went crying into the wilderness of people's hearts, the hardness, the hard, rocky ground of ancient Israel, and he preached, repent. You've got to change your mind about your condition. You Pharisees need to change your idea that you can be right with God by obeying religious rules and regulations. You soldiers need to turn around. You policemen that are soldiers need to stop using power to abuse people. Instead, do your job well. Tax collectors, don't collect too much. We brought that up into the modern setting. John the Baptist would say to every one of you, you're going to have to change your mind about life, change your mind about God, and you're going to have to be honest before Him, you're going to have to openly confess your sins before Him, and you're going to have to become like you were an unpromised child. John the Baptist said to the promised people, you're going to have to realize that you're not the promised people anymore because of your sin. And the fact that you have Father Abraham as your father isn't going to do you a bit of good. All that religious birth is not going to help you. You need to act like you're a Gentile, like you're an unclean person, and go through proselyte baptism. That was the unique thing of John the Baptist's ministry. He called upon Jews to declare themselves to be the unpromised people of God, not under that blessing because of their sin, and he called upon them to repent and to publicly confess that by being baptized. People from all over Judea, all over the Jerusalem area, even up into Galilee, came down to the Jordan River and they began to respond to John the Baptist's ministry. And there were moving meetings. I've been in meetings that are kind of like that, where the Holy Spirit moves among a group of people. And you'll have a meeting where a guy will stand up and he'll say, John, I've been angry at you for the last year. It's been eating my guts out. You hurt me severely and I haven't been able to forgive you, forgive you for it. 
And God is speaking to my heart this morning and I know I'm not going to be right with God, John, until I tell you I'm sorry. And I ask God to forgive me and I ask my brothers and sisters and not some kind of an emotional thing that, that just kind of gets gooey and all that kind of thing, but a genuine, powerful moving of the Spirit. That's what was happening in John the Baptist's ministry. People would come to him and before they were baptized, they would confess their sins to God and to others. And as they were baptized, they would be confessing that they wanted to be washed clean, that they wanted to be ready for the Messiah to come, that they wanted God to take care of their sin. And therefore, they were prepared for the kingdom. And hundreds of thousands of people were responding to that genuine work of the Spirit of God. Now, right at that time, when all the people were being baptized, look what it says in verse 21 of Luke chapter 3. Luke 3, 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in the bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, when we turn over to the book of Matthew, we find out that there was a struggle between John the Baptist and Jesus over whether or not this baptism should take place. You'll notice in chapter 3, Matthew 3, verse 13, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him. What a preacher. Most preachers are working like crazy to get you into the tank. Here was one preacher that was trying to deter Jesus from being baptized. Why? Because John the Baptist said, I need to be baptized by you. And why do you come to me now? You see, what was going on in John's mind? John, because he was full of the Spirit, recognized that Jesus was sinless. John the Baptist said Jesus was so great that John the Baptist, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament dispensation, didn't even feel worthy to tie his shoes. And now this Jesus, who John knows is the Word who dwelled with God in eternity past, has now become flesh and is dwelling among us. John knew in a very real sense that Jesus that was standing before him was God fleshed out. And if ever there was a man who was God fleshed out, the only unique Son of God, Jesus the Messiah was that man. John knew that he, Jesus had the kind of credentials where in a few years in his ministry, his enemies would be accusing him. And Jesus could turn to his enemies and say, which one of you can convict me of sin? Now, I want to share something with you. I would never look at you and say, all right, which ones of you can convict me of sin? Mary would be up on her feet in a second. And my close friends would be right up behind her. And a whole bunch of you. I've sinned against a whole bunch of you because I'm human. You're all like that. You've sinned against me. That's the nature of being human beings. But can you imagine an individual who he could say to anybody, convict me of sin. Can you find anything in my life where I've let you down in the sense that I've offended you before a righteous, holy God where I haven't totally obeyed the commandments? And his enemies were silenced. Jesus is the one man in all of Judea that didn't need to go to John the Baptist. 
because he did not need to change his mind one single bit about God the Father. Everything he believed about God the Father was right on the money. Jesus was the one man that had no sins to confess. Jesus was the one man that didn't need to get ready for the kingdom of God because in his person, he was the kingdom of God, you might say. So what did he do? Well, there's a part of me that would, putting myself in Jesus', Jesus shoes, not having the problem, there's a part of me, which is part of my sin nature, that would say, you have the problem, I don't have the problem. In fact, I really, I, I know that the Lord has a long way to go in me because I find when other people have problems that I don't, that my reaction to them is, shape up. What's wrong with you? Why do you struggle with that? What's the matter with you? You discourage me completely because you do the same stupid thing over and over again. And it's always a problem I don't have any problem with. You ever notice that about your personality? Well, Jesus is the one person that could have done that with all problems. He could have said, why do you struggle with that? Why do you struggle with that? Why do you struggle with that? That's no problem. You can overcome it. You can have strength. Rely upon the power that God gives you. Jesus is the one person who had every right not to identify with sinners at all. And John the Baptist knew it, and that's why he tried to convince Jesus, you ought to baptize me. Because I'm the sinful man. You're the spotless Lamb of God. But an amazing thing happened. Jesus looked at John and he said, John, it is necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. It is necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. When all the other people were baptized, Jesus, according to Dr. Luke, came down to those waters, and when all the other people were baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Do you know why? Because the wonder of the first coming of Jesus is the reason Jesus came into the world was not to be divorced from our problems. It wasn't to be distant from our need, but it was to become totally immersed in our need. It was to become totally involved with our problems. And what it meant for Jesus to be baptized is when he went down underneath that water, he was declaring the whole purpose of my life and I'm foreshadowing it now like a brilliant writer. It's like God the Father, like a master novelist. He's saying, I'm going to give you the whole meaning of the story. I'm going to give you it in a picture form. In a moment of time, you're going to understand what the whole coming of Jesus is about. As Jesus went underneath that water, he was saying, I'm going to die. And as I die and as I go underneath those waters, I'm going to take all the sins of the world. The spotless one is going to take all the dirt, all the religious pride of Phariseeism, all the immorality of the Samaritan woman, all the questioning of Peter, all the cussing of Peter. And you can go on and on. All the doubting of Thomas. Jesus was saying, I'm going to take all of that crud and I'm going to take it upon my personality and upon my body and into my life and I'm going to bury it. And I'm going to wash it away. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. Luke chapter 11 says this. Jesus Himself said, I have a baptism that I must undergo. 
In Jesus' mind, baptism was an identification with death. It was an identification with a death that would bring cleansing. And Jesus was baptized because at the very beginning of His ministry, at the initiation of the kingdom coming to this earth, Jesus wanted to declare to all of us and all those people, I have come not to be distant, but to be close. I have come not to judge, but to save. I have come not to be the one who's so unique and so divorced from you that I could care less about you and I would judge you. I have come not to judge, but I have come to bring forgiveness. And Jesus was baptized because by identifying with John the Baptist's ministry, he was declaring that he was in line with the will of the Lord, of the Lord God in heaven. And therefore, it became a beautiful symbol of the whole meaning of his life and then of his death and of his resurrection. Jesus' baptism was totally unique in that sense because his was the one baptism that was not because of his personal sin, but it was a figurement of the crucifixion where he would take our place, where he would take the rap for us. And you say, well, Dave, what does that mean for me today? Jesus said, I must be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. To bring about all righteousness. What does it mean that Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness? Well, in light of what I just told you about the meaning, the symbolic reality of what baptism represented, it represented a death. And what Jesus told John is, I must be baptized. I must be crucified. I don't deserve to be baptized. I don't deserve to die the crucifixion. I don't need baptism. I don't need the death of the cross. But he's saying, I'm going to willingly do it because I care about every single one of you. And that's what it's all about. And how does it fulfill righteousness? Because of that innocent, spotless, sinless Lamb of God that chose to be so identified with our sin that He became sin for us. He took our sins upon Him and He imputed or He put upon us His righteousness. That's why I can look around this room and I don't see sinners and wicked rebels against God. The reality of the matter is that I look at a lot of you and I see righteousness in Christ. I see those that have been born again. Many of you have. And because Christ took the rap for you, which was symbolized in His baptism at the very beginning of His ministry, because Jesus took your place, you're not a sinner anymore in your true, genuine identity. That's what it meant for Jesus to be baptized. He fulfilled righteousness because His baptism symbolized His death and it is His death which pays the penalty for our sin and it is that death which enables us to be right with God because the penalty's been paid. And it's all right there at the beginning of the ministry. And you need to understand it. You need to rejoice in it. And the second thing that happened when Jesus came up out of the water, you've all heard this story, it says that a dove descended. It says in verse 15, let it be so and it is proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water and at that moment, heaven was opened. Kind of like the book of Revelation. It's like God just 
broke the curtain between eternity and this earth for a brief period of time between the heavenly world and the kingdom of this world and he broke that curtain whatever it might be the heavens were open and at that moment he saw the spirit of god descending like a dove and lighting on him you say dave what happened you know as a kid i've always pictured this as you know like a little bird from like i see in the zoo you see a dove a white dove fly down and it kind of land i always think of it landing on his shoulder and that's kind of the conception I've had. How many of you think, you know, that's, that's the way you've pictured it? From the time I've been a little kid, you know, you, you, get, you get exposed to these stories when you're in Sunday school. And I remember as a little kid thinking, you know, well, that must have been. Now, I want you to notice something. It doesn't say, now, the Holy Spirit descended a dove. The Holy Spirit is not a dove. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. He doesn't have corporal form. He doesn't have bodily form. You know, he, he's, not, he's not like Jesus who has a physical body, who took a physical body. The Holy Spirit is spirit. So what does it mean that he descended like a dove? I think it's very... And it also says in John's Gospel, chapter 1, the Lord God told John, the one upon whom you see the Spirit descending, that's the one you'll know is the Messiah, and that's how you know that you should point him out and say, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John chapter 1. I think it's very possible that people that saw this event probably didn't witness anything visual. I'm not sure that they did. I'm not sure that this was very similar to the prompting of the Spirit of God in Simeon's life when Simeon had this voice within him that said, this is the Messiah. Only this time, John the Baptist, because God is very creative, God wanted him to have kind of a visual representation. And so John had some kind of a vision. Maybe other people saw it, maybe they did not. I don't know. I know that it wasn't a literal dove because the text tells us that it was like a dove, not that it was a dove. But the question I ask myself is, Heavenly Father, why did you give this vision to John so that he could see the Holy Spirit identifying Jesus as the Messiah? Why was it in the form of a dove? Why did John think of a dove? I think there's some beautiful reasons why that's so. And the best way to find out what an author is trying to communicate is to go back through his writings. If you have trouble in English understanding what a writer is doing, go back through the book and look at the way he uses this terminology in other sections. Good authors will use the same terminology, the same kind of concepts, all the way through their stories to communicate developing ideas. And the very first time we think about a dove in the Bible is in its time of judgment. Remember that? If I were to ask you, dove, Old Testament, Bible trivia, what do you think about? Tell me, who do you think about first of all? Noah! What do you think about the dove with Noah? He sent the dove out. Why did he send the dove out? To see if the waters were gone. What did the waters represent? What were they evidence of? Judgment. The whole world had been destroyed except for Noah's family. Noah lands on a rock, Ararat. And he's sitting there. Man, I wonder if I should go out. And he waits and he waits and he waits. And I'm sure his kids and everything else are saying, man, we've got to get out of this place. We've got to get out of this place. He says, man, if I let you out now, you might drown. How am I going to find out what's wrong? So he first of all sends out, I believe it was a raven that had a much wider range. 
but a dove doesn't have a very big range and it has to find some kind of a, of a branch to light on. And when he sent the dove out and it came back with the olive branch, he knew that the waters were way down. And so the dove, can you imagine how Noah must have felt when the dove came back with a branch in its mouth? Can you imagine being cooped up for all that time and hearing this ocean? A lot of you haven't been out in the ocean in a storm, but I have. A lot of you can join with me in that. Man, it's scary. And that must have been really scary because all the judgment and the anger of God against sin was in those waters. And then a dove comes back. And what does Noah know? The judgment's gone. The judgment has been abated. And now it's a time of peace. Now just think about it. That's powerful. Jesus is baptized who fulfilled all righteousness for you. It's time for the kingdom to come. And Jesus was just baptized, symbolizing his death. He's just been raised out of the water, symbolizing his resurrection. And now the dove of peace comes down. You know what it's saying? It's saying to every one of you, the judgment of God is past. There's no reason to feel that he's angry with you, that he's hostile towards you. Because he sent his son and he's paid the penalty and the dove has come. The Holy Spirit has come to change your life and to make you new, to make you forgiven. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ. Jesus would be appalling way of saying what the symbol of the dove meant. There is now no condemnation. That's the hardest thing for us to get a hold of here. The dove is symbolizing that the judgment is past. Second of all, what else do you think of with the dove? It talks about this in Genesis chapter 1. It speaks about the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. And the rabbis like to talk about the Spirit under the symbol of a bird that was hovering. And it spoke about the creative energy of God. So the dove also speaks to us about God's creation. And we could apply that in the idea of that in Christ we have received a new life. A dove also, right in this story that we've had so far, when I talked to you about Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus to the temple for purification, can anybody remember what they offered? Because they were poor? They offered a turtle dove. So the dove speaks to us, the judgment is passed but it speaks to us about sacrifice, which is the means by which the judgment was passed. And then in the Song of Solomon, which is a great book to read about Valentine's Day, you need to read that book about Valentine's Day. If you're married. We won't let you read it if you're not married. You have to be married. You have to be over 30 and you have to be married to read the Song of Solomon. That's what the rabbis said. But you can read it. All you 13 and 12-year-olds should go back and read it and realize what a thrilling time God has for you if you keep yourself pure. But in Song of Songs, chapter 1, and in chapter 2, it uses the symbol of a dove to speak about a lover. And so when you put together what God says about the dove, you have the judgment is past because of a sacrifice, and now there's affection and there's love. And there's a beautiful new marriage. How in the world could you get all that out of that? Don't tell me. I read novelists 
who just barely begin to get that kind of togetherness in their stories. Don't you tell me for a minute that the ultimate writer of all of eternity that writes his stories in living flesh and blood history, don't tell me that he doesn't know what he's doing when he says the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and drink deeply from those realities that the judgment is past, that it's a time of peace, the abating judgment of God is gone. And now there can be love, there can be affection because of the sacrifice. But the baptism of Jesus doesn't just begin with a conflict between Jesus and John. It doesn't just have this middle section where the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus. But the third thing is there's a voice. And you could just remember the baptism of Jesus. It's the mystery of why the water, why the dove, and why the voice? We're on the third one. Why the voice? Now, you all know that story. Jesus comes up out of the water. There's a voice that says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, some of you young people, I've talked about this in the past, I want to mention it again. Some of you young people have asked a very important question How do I know that I should be here? worshiping Jesus Christ. Why shouldn't we worship Buddha? We were just watching uh, Short Circuit, number something. And it's about this very cute story about this robot. The language is rough, too bad. They always mess it up. You know why they mess it up like that? Because you can't ever get away from the conflict, even when you're being entertained. And I want you, as a believer, you should really get strength from that. Why do people have to cuss in a movie? I have never yet heard, oh, Buddha, in a movie. Never yet. I've never seen a movie where somebody went into a Muslim mosque and they mocked the mosque completely, just made the guy that was leading the mosque look like a real idiot. He was throwing people out because he wouldn't identify. It's always some kind of a church. Why? That encourages me greatly. You know why? It says that what we're doing is real. I think that's neat. It says that what we're doing is reality. We can't ever get away from the conflict. You say, I'm going to be entertained for a little bit. And you can't get away from the conflict. There's still these competing things. So they mention in the film the, the, this, this machine who has a computer mind that just reads books, you know, like I wish I could read them, just flips them, broom, like this, has got them all down. Somebody mentioned Jesus Christ. He goes, lived 1 AD, 30 AD. He was wrong about that, off, but it came up. He also went on to mention Buddha, couple other religious figures, I'm not sure whether it's Confucius, some other religious figures, and the priest said, well, I'm more into the... Oh, he mentioned the Koran and some of the other holy writings of India, and the priest said, well, I'm more into the Bible. And it very subtly was saying, this is the thing that goes over almost everybody that watches, the writer was, su was subtly telling you, it's all the same. In the new computer age, as we move into artificial intelligence and everything, the Koran, the Bible, religious literature, we, we need it all. It's all good. And if you don't want to be narrow-minded, you don't want to just center in the Bible. See, you all miss that, but it's all right there. If you ever do any writing, you'll understand. You think about that when you're writing. C.S. Lewis says the best way to get across points is don't preach to them like I do. Just tell them stories where you assume 
everything you want them to believe. Don't ever tell them what to believe. Just assume it. And tell stories that just assume those realities. So they just assume the reality. Core and Bible, it's all the same. And you young people have a very legitimate question, as well as every one of you adults, that you say, well, why should we believe in Jesus? Because Jesus is the man that lived on this planet where the ultimate creator of the universe said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. God never did that with Buddha. The true God of all creation never said, this is Buddha. He is my beloved son. If you depend upon him, you'll have eternal life. And young people and children and adults, you have every right to go out of here and believe in Buddha. And I'll respect that. Because you're a human being. You have a right to choose. But I want to share with every one of you, you better evaluate Buddha's credentials really well. Because when I was in an intensive care ward just two days ago, and a young woman is on the balances of eternity, and we join hands and we pray, I could pray, oh Buddha, Meet Debbie's need. We need you to work in our life. We're wrestling with a great mystery, the balance between life and death. We want her to stay here, but we realize that it's possible she might go on into the next world, and that would hurt us very deeply, but we need your help. Buddha could not help me one single bit because Buddha's got the same trouble with eternity that I've got. I've never been there. I don't know what's beyond. I arrived in this planet. I don't remember, remember anything for about two years, and now I remember a few things. Jesus is the only man that ever lived in this planet that was identified from the Creator of heaven. This is the Son, the beloved Son, and I'm pleased with Him. You say, well, Dave, so what? Those are the most fantastic words I've ever heard. Because you know what I want God to say about me? I ask you the question, if God spoke from heaven about you, what would he say? This is Dave Wurtson. What's the next statement? What about you? You know what a lot of you are thinking? You say, oh no, man, that's the last thing I want. If you said next Sunday morning, God's going to speak to us in an audible voice. He's going to begin in the front row with Diane, go right back through the sections, and he's going to identify every one of you in that church, and he's going to say, this is so-and-so. And then he's going to characterize us, what he thinks about us, what he feels about us. None of us would want to come, right? I want you to think carefully about that because it'll get right at the heart of your relationship with God. You know what some of you are thinking now? Oh, man, i got to go out and work hard. Maybe I can please Him this week. You say, Dave, what would God say about you? And this is what God would say about Dave Wurtson. This is Dave Wurtson. Next words. My beloved son, my much-loved son, not my unique son, only one of those. But this is my... My loved son, in whom I'm well pleased. He's the apple of my eye. I love him dearly. And you go, you audacious preacher. I knew those preachers were egotistical, but that is incredible. You say, how in the world do you know God the Father would say that? You know why? Because I got, at a time in my life, 
right in behind the one and only Son. The ultimate reality of my life is that Jesus told the truth. He was identified from heaven. And I put all of my confidence for eternal life in what He did for me. And I got right in behind Him so that when God the Father evaluates me, He sees me in Him. And the Holy Spirit that came upon Jesus has come into my life and created a new heart and a new life. And He's not finished with it yet. Got a long way to go in some ways. But He's doing a creative work. And my position in Christ is, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. How about you? How about you? If you're a believer this morning, Live your whole life. I challenge you to run well. There's so many guys I know that are about my age. And we started running well together. We started preaching together. And there's some of those guys that aren't preaching anymore. They've started doing other things. They've started living their life for other values. And they have the right to do that because they're made in the image of God. They can make choices. But oh, what a loss. I want you to compare what I have shared with you about the water as a symbol of the crucifixion and the resurrection that has forever washed your sins away. I want you to think about what I told you about full of the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. And I want you to think about what I said about this is my beloved son. And you businessmen, I want you to think of the, the uplifting sales conventions you've gone through. A lot of good information give to you. But businessmen and women, you compare what we've heard with what you hear about positive thinking in a business convention. Some of the books you read, compare what you read from a human standpoint with what the Holy Word of God says. And it's in another category. And that's what I want us to start to burn about. That's what I want us to start to really move out about. That's what I want us to get excited about. Because that's the greatest good news in all the world. Heavenly Father, we just would ask you that you would cause the baptism of Jesus to for the rest of our lives be engraven upon our minds. We've studied this account in the past, and so many have already known some of the realities that we've shared. But Father, I would pray that whenever they hear this story again, that you would bring to their remembrance Jesus' identification with sinners and the cleansing and the transformation that he brings because he drew near to us. I would ask you that whenever we hear about the Spirit from heaven, that a great thrill would begin to move through our bodies as we realize the judgment is past because of the sacrifice. And now there's an affection, there's a love with the living Christ. A bridegroom He has become. And Father, I would pray that whenever we hear those words, your voice from heaven that identified your son at the very beginning of his ministry, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I pray that each one that believes would think that they've 
stood in line behind that dear Savior. And therefore, what's said about Him by a miracle of grace can be said about them. I'd ask you, Lord, for anyone that has never come to know Christ personally, they never believed in Him like we've talked about today, I would pray that they would admit to you that they're a sinner, that they would respond to the voice of the Holy Spirit who would like to come in and fill their life and identify their personality with Christ and give them a new life. I pray that their heart would be open, that they might say, even as we close, Dear Jesus, thank you for identifying with me. Thank you for dying for me. I thank you for rising again. I believe that you actually did it. And I will put my confidence personally for eternal life in you. Anyone that doesn't know you, we pray that they will come to know you. In Jesus' name.